Amen. I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you want to get out your uh, sermon outline. It says, Fighting for the Gospel on it. We're at the end of 2 Timothy, having uh, gone through that book this summer, and um, next week uh, we're going to hear from Hosea for a week, and then we're going to dive into the Gospel of John. I expect we'll be there for a while. So, just so you know what's coming, and uh, you can always look and see upcoming sermons are on our uh, website. Brian has done a great job maintaining and updating and uh, always adding new uh, cool stuff to the website. encourage you to check it out if you haven't. But uh, there's the schedule there, so you can always check and see what's going to happen. And um, they encourage you to, to look that up. But we're, today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're starting at verse 6, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to, have loved, to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And after, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Abulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's a lot of words at the end of this book. There's some very key things there. 
Father, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes and ears, that we would take in what you have for us, that your spirit would bring your word into our life with conviction, with assurance, with comfort, for you know what it is that we need. We ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night, Joanne and I were watching the movie Walk the Line, a biography of the uh, first half of Johnny Cash's life, and uh, enjoyed it a great deal, very realistic um, with all of his struggles and demons. But in the movie, there's a part where he's trying to go to a recording studio and uh, wants to make an impression, of course, the a small studio in Memphis owned by Sam Phillips, who would later become famous for uh, being one of the guys that really started rock and roll uh, out of this small recording studio in Memphis. And so they audition Johnny Cash and his band. They do a gospel song, and he said, you know, thousands of people have done this. And Johnny's like, well, what do you want us to do? And he said, if you have one song left, there's somebody dying, and you've got to come to him and sing to him, what would you sing? And they're all sort of stumped. And uh, he sings Folsom Prison Blues, and uh, which the band had never heard. They're behind him saying, Johnny, we've never done this before. And uh, they pull it off. And I was watching that and saying, oh, no, that's my opening illustration for tomorrow. I had no idea it was in this movie. I'd never seen it before. And... Um, but I had gotten a poll about three years ago uh, from the clergy leader's mailing list, and the poll says there's this lady uh, who had collapsed near the edge of the road, struggled from so, some hours to drag herself to the edge while lots of people drove by, and eventually another young lady stopped, assisted her off the road, called for help. But it was obviously too late. This ill person was dying of hypothermia. Maybe she had a stroke uh, from which she also may have died, but the immediate preventable cause of death was hypothermia. That's when your body temperature just drops too low. It's a sad story of failure of responsibility to our neighbor. I mean, where were all the good Samaritans? Had anyone actually called the police? But there was another aspect to the story as I was reading this. This young lady who had... Uh, not only stopped and helped and called for uh, help, but she stayed with this lady, and she held her, she talked with her, she kissed her, and she prayed with her, and she sang to her. And the poll that this guy had sent out was, if that was you stopping to help this woman, what would you sing? What would you sing? Assume she's unable to respond. You don't know whether she's a Christian or not. Don't take any time to analyze your response. Just go with your gut reaction, your gut answer. What would you sing? Go ahead, call them out. Tell me, what's the first song comes to mind? You got a dying person in your arms. Amazing Grace. That was actually number two in the poll. Amazing Grace. What else? What else would anybody sing? <laughs> I don't think that one would come to mind. 
blessed assurance. That made it too. It's uh, actually got one vote, sort of an honorable mention category. Great is thy faithfulness. Didn't make the poll. No, yes, it did. Here it is. I have a listing here. It was uh, tied for fifth with uh, two votes. That's number one. 25 votes. Amazing Grace had 22. What a friend we have in Jesus had seven. The 23rd Psalm had four. Then there were eight songs tied with two. Abide with me because he lives. God will take care of you. Great is thy faithfulness. How great thou art. Nearer, my God, to thee. The Lord's Prayer. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And then there were 32 honorable mentions You've got to remember, this was all sent to ministers. And they all were hymns, except one was All My Loving by the Beatles. <laughs> the rest were all other hymns. And I had responded to, and my uh, immediate thought was Amazing Grace. Although uh, I looked them over and I had one, Peace Like a River, and that's another favorite of mine. What would you sing? And I thought about that because... Here at the end of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is dying. We have his last words that he wrote to his beloved protege, Timothy. They're the last thoughts of this brilliant Apostle. And he's calling for Timothy to come to him, to be with him, to comfort him, to pray with him, and perhaps to sing to him. He wants to place himself in Timothy's arms as death is fast approaching. What would Timothy sing? What would you sing? Not really sure we can truly answer that question, at least not for Timothy, without looking at what Paul's last words, last thoughts, last requests are going to be. So let's look at this passage. Let's see what's important to Paul at the end of his life. And although I read the whole passage, verses 6 through 22, this morning I'm really going to focus in just on verses 6 through 8. Because there's lots of other good stuff here, but as I was going through this, I was like, I could easily make this two or three sermons, and I've only got one Sunday. So that you're not here till 2 o'clock. We're going to focus in on verses 6 through 8. And uh, Because that's the meat of the passage, and that's where we're going to put our attention. As noted several times previously, when Paul wrote this letter, the gospel was being contaminated in many churches by compromise and by falsehood. Ungodly teachers were distorting the truth, and they were causing uh, other nominal Christians um, to... Depart the faith, and he pretty much warned him about that. First Timothy 4, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. True believers were tolerating ungodliness in the body of Christ and in their own lives, being more concerned about pleasing themselves and about pleasing other people than about pleasing God. Paul knew that his present imprisonment, remember he's in prison in Rome, and um, this would be the final one. He'd been in prison a number of times, 
And, uh, but he wasn't getting out of this one. He would escape only by martyrdom. And it would be a difficult time for him, not because of his own physical predicament, because of the spiritual predicament of so many of these believers and churches for whom he'd poured out his life. And he had special concern for Timothy, for the problems of false living and false teaching that Timothy faced in the church at Ephesus for the problems that Timothy had with timidity and sort of being apprehensive in his personal life. And again and again in his letters, these two letters to Timothy, he challenged him to have courage and to be faithful, to resist the onslaught of error with the power of God's word. And as Paul languished in Rome's cold, dripping, subterranean prison, mud and dust coated his existence, and it all seemed an appropriate symbol for his life. Paul is now a nobody. He's lost all of his high-born status by following Jesus. He is now a poor man, shivering in the cold in inadequate clothing. He says, bring a cloak. And apart from Luke, he's deprived of the presence of his friends and forsaken by many one-time followers. He was charged with sedition, which I looked up. It literally means inciting others to rebellion. And he suffered contempt and abuse from his jailers. Paul had become a joke among his enemies. They reasoned that his uh, misery was proof that God was not with him. And as he languished in his cell, his work in Ephesus is being torn apart by religious wolves like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who taught that the future resurrection of believers was already past and all the prosperities of heaven were present now. And therefore, according to their first century version of name it and claim it theology, they said that Paul's plight and his imminent death are due to his own errant theology and his own sin, and it was sort of shame on Paul. If he really believed, he'd be out free and rich like us. And so it's looking really dark. It's down. It's bad. I mean, there's no positives. And yet, we start by seeing that for Paul, far from being a life of shame, he views life as a personal triumph. As a personal triumph. And that's really the one thing you need to remember from this passage. Paul's life is a personal triumph. He's looking over his life from the perspective of living out his last days. And he's pretty honest and blunt, as people often are when they know they're dying. So he starts with an honest statement about the present. About the present, verse 6. Because the Excuse me, the present reality for Paul is that he's dying and departing. Verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, Paul has borrowed the vivid image of being poured out like a drink offering from the Jewish custom of pouring out wine at the base of the altar as part of the ritual sacrifice of a lamb. It's found numerous times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, one example being Numbers 28.7. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. And this image of red wine splashing down upon the altar 
became a metaphor for how Paul lived his life. Speaking of his death as a drink offering, I might also refer to the type of execution he expected to suffer, and which church history tells us he did suffer, because Roman citizens, which Paul was one, could not be crucified. He knew that likely he would be beheaded, literally pouring out his own blood for the Lord. Some five years earlier, Paul had written uh, to the Philippians about the possibility of his death, describing it in Philippians 2. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Of course, when he wrote to the Philippians, it was hypothetical. Now, as he's writing to Timothy, it's really happening. He uses the present tense in a progressive sense to indicate certainty, the certain death, as if it were an event already taking place. And though there's some amount of time before the event, I mean, he's asking for books and a warm coat. In his mind, the last drops of Paul's blood were, in a sense, beginning to fall. And yet he's triumphant. It's pretty clear that Paul didn't think of himself about to be executed as uh, some great failure, but as an offering to God. From the time of his conversion on the Damascus Road, everything he had was given to God. Wealth, his body, his brilliant mind, his passions, his positions, his reputation, his relationships, his dreams. For years, the red blood of Paul's life had been spilling onto the altar. And now all that remained was his last breath. And he's triumphantly giving that up along with all the rest. And by calling death a departure, he says, and the time of my departure has come, he's revealing the assurance he had that life would not end and he had no fear of death. The word translated departure is used in Greek literature to describe uh, the loosening of a ship from its moorings. It pictures a ship lifting anchor and tossing off the ropes um, that would tie it to the dock and rising on the tide so the winds can carry it out to sea. And the words sort of radiate the sweet, triumphant, continuing on. I don't know how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, but C.S. Lewis has it right in his book, The Last Battle. Because he says in there, it's explaining what's going to happen to the deceased children. And it says, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. And this final departure is a culmination of Paul's long-held dream that he had earlier expressed to the Philippians in Philippians 1, saying, my desire is to depart, to cast off the ropes, and to be with Christ, for that is far better. He believed with all his heart that it was far better, that those who departed to be with Christ are far better off. And whether you live uh, 75 or 80 years, it's better to be with Christ. Whether you're the richest man in town, life in heaven with Christ is far better. In, you may be brilliant, but understanding in heaven is far better. And if you only live five years, still it's far better. 
to be with Christ. Though you have great gifts for ministry, it's far better. The fact that being with Christ is far better dominated Paul's thoughts, as it should ours. The present held no fears for Paul. It was triumph. And then he looks back to the past, verse 7. Looks to the past. And he's equally triumphed. Verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Imagine Paul at the end of his career dressed in the armor that he described in Ephesians 6. Remember that all the armor they talk about? He's worn his war belt so long that it's sweaty through and through and stained with salt, comfortable like an old horse's bridle. And it holds everything perfectly in place. The belt of truth. It's called in Ephesians 6. God's truth has girded him tight for years, so much so that it has permeated his life and reigns within. And he's armed with the clear eyes of a clean conscience. He can face anything. His torso is sheathed with a battle-tarnished breastplate. It's crisscrossed with great lateral grooves from slicing sword blows and dented from any enemy artillery which likely were rocks and stones. And the breastplate of righteousness has preserved his life. His life has, uh, a holiness of his life has rendered his heart uh, impervious, impenetrable to all the spiritual assaults of Satan. His legs are comfortable in old, worn boots. He stood his ground on several continents. The boots are the gospel of peace, peace with God and the resulting peace of God that comes through faith. And he stands in peace and cannot be moved. His great shield terrifies the eyes for all of the broken shafts and many charred holes reveal him to be the victor of many battles. The shield of faith held up as you repeatedly believe God's word, caught and extinguished every fiery dart of doubt and materialism and sensuality. None have touched him. On his head, which I imagine is covered with gray hair, he wears a helmet that has seen better days. Great dents mar its symmetry, reminders of glancing blows dealt him by the enemy. Because the helmet of salvation the confidence of knowing that he is saved and will be saved has allowed him to stand tall against the most vicious assaults. His imperial confidence gives him a regal bearing. So you have this image of this old soldier with his armor on. It all fits. And then finally there's his sword. He was equal to 100 when his sword flashed. Of course, the sword is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The ultimate offensive weapon. Cut through everything, armor, glistening flesh, white bone, marrow, even the soul. And he had stood before Felix and Agrippa, officials of Rome, and he hadn't given an inch. He was a consummate warrior. So when he says here, I have fought the good fight, every possible nuance of that phrase is true. Paul contended not only with false teachers and false brethren among his own people and with the sovereigns of imperial Rome, but also, 
As it says in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One commentator wrote, It had been a fight against Satan, against the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness and the heavenlies, against Jewish and pagan vice and violence, against Judaism among the Galatians, against fanaticism among the Thessalonians, against contention, fornication, and litigation amongst the Corinthians. They were especially busy in Corinth. Against incipient Gnosticism, among the Ephesians and the Colossians, against fighting without and fears within, and last but not least, against the law of sin and death that operated within his own heart. And if you remember his life, he suffered an amazing litany of dangers and indignities. Second uh, Corinthians 11 says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods, Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. There's a theme here. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And despite all of that, and all the suffering, and all the hardship, Paul stands there at the last day and shouts, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So he looks back on his life. He says, I have fought the good fight. It's complete. It's done forever. It's good and it's noble. And I look at that and you have to look at that and say, we're in a fight. You're in a fight. I'm in a fight. Any faithful Christian constantly battles his own flesh, his own sin, his own ignorance, his own laziness. We have to battle the temptation to do things that in and of themselves are still good in place of other things that are more important. Every day there are new fronts on which the struggle continues. And as with Paul, so with us. I have fought the good fight. He says, I have finished the race. This week I read about a professor at a Christian college out in the West, and along with his son, he went on a thousand-mile backpacking trip from British Columbia to Southern California. And uh, it was a pretty amazing trip. They hiked through the mountains of Washington and Oregon and California, and for days they were alone on the trail. I picked up a friend here. Um... They were camping often above the 10,000-foot level, and they were faced all sorts of discouragement, lack of food and water, danger from wild animals, uh, danger from robbers that would be waiting uh, on the trail, um, days of rain and mud, physical exhaustion, the very real possibility of injury, 
not to speak of loneliness and mosquitoes and blisters and just the various extremes of hot and cold. But before leaving on the trip, the professor did some research. He discovered that 90% of those who set out to hike more than 500 miles, which is pretty far distance, that's here to Boston. He said 50% never get started and 40% quit after they start. Only 10% ever finish a long-distance hike. And after studying the 10% uh, who succeeded, he came to certain conclusions. And some of it involved uh, strenuous training and a meticulous logistical preparation. But he said there's something else involved, something more important. He discovered those who succeeded versus those who failed understood that the biggest block was mental. They knew their real enemy lay within, not without. And those who succeeded made uh, two important decisions. First, they decided they would finish the trip no matter what. And second, they expected bad things to happen and decided they would not be surprised or dismayed when they happened. So when the rains turned the trail into a quagmire, they didn't quit. They weren't surprised. When the clouds of mosquitoes descended like some Old Testament plague, they didn't quit. They weren't surprised. When they faced days of loneliness, nights of hunger, they didn't quit. They knew it would be like that. They adopted a mindset. They knew the key was simply putting one foot in front of the other. You take a step and hit the mud. You take another step and see a bear. You take another step and your legs begin to cramp. You take another step and crazy people come out of the woods. Doesn't matter. You aren't surprised because you knew crazy people would show up sooner or later. So you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and eventually your journey is finished. And I read that, and I said, that's Paul's approach to the Christian life. No matter what happened, he just kept moving forward by the grace of God. One foot in front of the other, one step at a time, one day at a time. He wasn't deterred by opposition because he knew it was coming. Our problem is we're surprised by trouble. We think the Christian life ought to be easy. It's not easy. And it's not supposed to be easy. I hope that's not new news. Today is a day of struggle, of combat, of warfare. We march to battle in the name of the Lord. The day of rest comes later in the future, and we'll get to that. But this second of Paul's declarations, I have finished the race, means I have finished the course. God sent a specific course before Paul, some of which had been revealed to him at the beginning. Way back in Acts 9, Ananias informed him of all the things he would suffer. But now he's completing the course. It's significant he makes no boast that he won the race. He simply states that he finished it. There's no ego here, only satisfaction in having completed the race. Everything God had set before him was done. And the writer of Hebrews noted that every believer has a course marked out for him or her. In Hebrews 12:1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin uh, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The course for each one of us is unique. You don't have to run my course, and I don't have to run yours. Some courses seem relatively straight. 
Some are all turns. Some seem all uphill. Some are as flat as Indiana. Some seem, some are even longer. And the glory is that each of us can finish the race set before us. Because the course laid out for each one of us by our sovereign, omniscient God is perfect for each one of us. Those only with a few years left and those who are just beginning can all finish the course. Paul completed his race because he set his heart to do so. He expressed that earlier to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, which we read as part of our responsive reading this morning. He said, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then his third declaration, I have kept the faith. First, having maintained that apostolic deposit of doctrine, the gospel, which he had in various places told Timothy to keep. In 1 Timothy 6, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 1, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit uh, entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 4, we saw last week, preach the word. All of this Paul had done, and he had done it with deep faith. And what triumph it was for Paul to raise his eyes from his surroundings, he's in prison, below ground, you've got to look up to see out. And he looks back across the years and he can proclaim with confidence and finality, I have fought the good fight. I was noble in the struggle. I didn't back away ever. I weathered all that came my way. I took up the sword of the word and fought until it was won with my arm. I have finished the race. I have kept the course God laid out for me from the beginning of time. My boast, if any, is that I finished the marathon. I'm done, and I rest in that. I've kept the faith. I kept it. I preached it. I lived it. My life has been and still is a gospel life, and it hasn't diminished a bit. Those things are done, and they will remain done. So he's looked at the present. He's looked at the past. And to complete the thought, he looks to the future in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown that awaits Paul is not a crown of glory, a crown of peace, a crown of joy, but the crown of righteousness. The righteous judge is Jesus himself. He'd already given Paul his righteousness when Paul believed, and now he gives him the ultimate crown of righteousness, the ultimate permanent state of righteousness. As New Testament scholar Gordon Fee remarked, one receives the final crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. Why a crown of righteousness? Why not a crown of glory? Well, for one, righteousness is the greatest need that we sinners have. It is the singular thing that we cannot do for ourselves. And it's from the crown of righteousness that all other crowns come. And Paul looked through those bars to the future and saw the morning star, Jesus Christ, bearing in his hand Paul's future crown of righteousness. And wonder of wonders, the ultimate crown, amazingly, is not reserved just for great ones like Paul. 
He says, but not only to me, but also to all who love disappearing. Christians are people who love Christ. And because they love him, they long for his appearing. Their true home is heaven, and they characteristically look forward to the blessed hope of Christ's return. They know it is far better. Do you love his appearing? It's the question the text uh, suggests. Do you love his appearing? Do you truly? If so, the crown of righteousness is reserved for you on that day. Paul's about to die. And the way a period of history interprets death is a, a valuable key to understanding that error, the spirit of that age. If you look around at an error like ours, which has made death into the final obscenity, apparently the only obscenity, tells us a great deal about ourselves. The dread of death surrounds us, but how we're refreshed by the perspective of the apostle. Deep in the mud of the earth, Paul looked at his present death as a triumphant sacrifice, as merely the loosing of the moorings at the beginning of a great journey. And he looked back on his life, he voices a trio of unshakable satisfaction. I have fought the good fight. Can't deny that. I have finished the race. Nothing's left undone. I have kept the faith. He's true to the gospel. And from the mud, he saw it all. And the stars shone brightly. And as he looked forward, he saw the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the bright morning star, bringing the crown of righteousness to place on his servant. And there's light at midnight. You know, as most of you know, I subscribe to a number of email newsletters Uh, primarily as a means of collecting sermon illustrations. And I delete far more than I keep, but I keep a lot. And one man who sends a regular devotional is named Jason. Jason was born with a rare uh, neuromuscular disease that now confines him to an electric wheelchair, requires him to use a ventilator to breathe. He lives in a uh, um, uh, care center for those who can't take care of themselves. He's not an old man. He's younger than me. But he writes a regular devotional, and he often comments on his own situation. And I found one of them quite personal and quite poignant, and I thought he could identify with the personal triumph of Paul. He writes, A couple of days ago, one of the residents in the care center I lived in passed away. His name was Harlan. Harlan was only in his 50s. Two days before he died, he seemed to be doing fine. As I thought about Harlan's death, I began to remember all the people I knew in this care center that have since passed away. I realized that death usually comes unexpectedly. Some of my friends that passed away were about my age or even younger, friends like Tim, Rick, and Ben. One day, death will knock on my door. When it does, what will people say of my life? How will people remember me when I'm gone? My prayer is that people will say things like, I saw Jesus in him. He had a heart of compassion. He radiated joy. I learned to draw closer to God through his devotionals. And when I stand before God's throne, I hope to be able to say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Someone once said the saddest thing is for someone to die with his song still in him. 
I don't want to keep my song buried deep inside me. I want to sing it bold and clear so that all may hear. I want to bless others with the melody of the ages. I want to sing the song of salvation, lifting my voice in praise to the one who saved my soul. I'm just passing through this earth, but I can't leave it without sharing some truth with other travelers, the truth that makes the journey worthwhile. Before I leave this old earth, I want to point others to Jesus. I want my life to mean something. I can't leave you with an inheritance of silver and gold, but I can leave you with something more valuable. I can leave you with the knowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that by repenting and believing in the gospel, you will spend eternity in the loving presence of God. May my life point to Jesus and may my death be the death of a good fighter, a race finisher, a keeper of the faith from a fellow traveler just passing through. Jason. Perhaps we need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, someone once said death is the last thing we talk about. But your word doesn't shy away from it. Doesn't avoid it. And it holds it up as a triumph. Father, how our society has slipped away from that thought. How we slip away from that. Lord, I pray this morning that while we don't know how long we're going to be here, that we would fight the good fight, that we would set our minds to finish the course set before us, that we would keep the faith. And all those things sound easy to do, but none of them are. In fact, we would often retreat, quit, and leave. And yet that's not what your word calls us to do. So I pray this morning by the power of your spirit, you would enable us not to quit, not to retreat, not to leave, but to stay in the battle to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to hang on to the only faith that matters. I ask that your spirit would begin that work, continue that work, keep at that work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.